0: People think you know, one IP, one person is enough to hack into a big group. It's not the way it works. Like, it's definitely not the way it works in the modern world. DevOps are just the late kid in the room compared to hackers. They were doing industrialization a decade earlier. The industry has everything a decade earlier than we do. So they have everything they need to deploy, to redeploy, to move, to change IPs on the fly, to change domain names on the fly, and so on and so forth. We have to be faster in the processing and subtler in the sensitivity, right? So that's why the network size matters. The bigger the network, the most accurate and the fastest the detection will be.
1: Stop overpaying for big tech cloud. Vulture offers powerful cloud compute and bare metal at a fraction of the cost. Visit vulture V-U-L-T-R, dot com slash stack to redeem $100 in credit today. Hello, everybody. Good morning and welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast, a place to talk about all things software and technology. I am Ben Popper, the Director of Content here at Stack Overflow, and I am joined today, as I often am, by my wonderful crew of co-hosts, Cassidy Williams, C.R. Ford, and Ryan Donovan. Hey, y'all.
2: Hey. Hey.
1: So today we are going to be talking about security, crowd security, safety in numbers, and we are going to be chatting with Philippe, who is the founder and CEO. So Philippe, welcome to the Stack Overflow podcast.
0: Thank you. It's a privilege to be there.
1: Tell this group of folks at a very high level, if you had to explain it to a layperson or to a software developer who's not that familiar with security, what does CrowdSec do and why is that interesting to a developer, to anyone? Yeah, sure. We consider
0: ourselves some, somehow the ways of cybersecurity, you know, like ways change the way we drive on the road because we see what's happening in front of us because of the number of people using ways, right? Ways is taking your heading, your position and, uh, you know, stuff like that and, and speed and telling you, okay, a head is a roadblock or a problem or whatever. We do the same stuff more or less, but we do it in cybersecurity. So if someone is aggressing a machine, the software detects the aggression. But it also shares the IPs with the the rest of the world, with the rest of the network. So we are defending each other, having each other's back.
2: It's like crowdfunding, but it's security, not funding, but, you know, supporting and stuff. It, 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 <laughs> yeah. I, I like the group effort concept.
1: The collaboration of it. Yeah. yeah,
0: there's safety in the numbers, you know. And what we're doing is not so revolutionary in the way that people do it on a daily basis. Like, right Why are we discussing together? Because Stack overflow is super known, right? You're reputable, everything's fine, people love you, and uh, that's your reputation, okay? But what we want to know also is what the behavior is. So if both your behavior and your reputation is okay, well, maybe Cassidy will invite you at a home because it's a private place and might be risky if you would have either bad reputation or bad behavior, right? It's the same stuff we do at nightclubs or things like this. We do this online. So meaning... For developers, for example, if you see something bad happening in your logs, it's a behavior thing that you're uh, triggering. You're checking the behavior of the person interacting with your software. And if you don't like what's happening, you can block it easily with like provided components. So it's all free and it's all easy to set up. right? But when you know that the same IP has been doing crap all over the world, this is not anymore a problem of behavior. It's a problem of reputation. That's why the security component we're offering is fed both by the behavior as seen to your logs and by the reputation as seen at our network level.
1: And so on Stack Overflow, in order to do a number of things, you know, ask a question, answer, upvote, edit, you need to earn reputation and then you get those privileges. Is it the same on your network? Like, how do you know that you can trust the people who are reporting and then they're not doing that to punish someone they don't like or... As a, as a way of doing some kind of other malicious act.
0: You know, this is what I love, Benjamin, uh, in the way uh, you think, guys, because you have the same problem, right? Who is legitimate or not to comment? Who is not trying to trick people into thinking this is a good or bad answer or whatever? Well, we have the same problem indeed. We don't want someone to trick us into thinking that Ryan's IP is a bad IP, whereas it's just a personal vengeance, you know? We, first of all, quarantine every newcomer into the network. It's a cold welcome, right? But Mm. it's for your own sake, actually. So for the six first months is, we're not listening to your signals at all. We're just checking your signals to see if they are accurate as compared to the rest of the network or from what we're seeing from the rest of the people using the network. But we will not take them into consideration. second thing we're doing, so after six months is, you're legitimate enough to interact with us, right, and with the others. But if you say you have, say, I don't know, 3,000 machines reporting to you, you can puppet them, right? You can make them all vote against someone, which would be unfair, you know? But as a matter of fact, we also have ways of identifying if those 3,000 machines are under the custody of one person only, which would bring you just one vote at the table, not 3,000. And the other thing we are doing is we are confronting the signals with the rest of the network, but with our own network of trust we have. We also run some honeypot machines to double-check the signals. And you're not at liberty of blocking stuff like, I don't know, Microsoft Update or Google Boat or things that are very critical for the global infrastructure of the internet. There's anyway no way of banning them. And if you do so, you're going to do more harm than good. So we would prevent you from doing so. And the last thing we do Yeah, I know it's a complicated answer for a simple question, but it's not so easy to trust people, right? The last thing we do is we have an algorithm that is checking for low signal-to-noise ratio. So, for example, if someone is scanning the whole internet, like a super large number of machines, say 65,000, for example, and they will each scan only one port, each of them, well, it would be very low signal, right? The, The threshold would be extremely low to listen to this background noise. But since there would be 65,000 mission implied in this, we would sit at the scale of our honeypot network. So this is how also we try to catch people that are trying to evade our techniques.
1: How do you deal with the, the sort of malice and deception from the other side? If somebody is setting up a botnet on computers or you know, smart fridges or whatever, how do you deal with those IPs getting banned that might have a useful purpose.
0: Yeah, well, that's another problem, face of the problem indeed. So we speak here about IPv4 addresses, which we don't have enough of them. Let's put it like this, right? So we use NAT techniques. So several people can be under the same IP address, for example. And it's exactly what's happening when you use your phone on a daily basis on a 4G network. There's not enough address for every phone on Earth to get one lately. So what we do is we're using a bunch of addresses, Hiding everyone behind, and each of those addresses have a lot of ports that can, they can use, you know, to translate your requests over the internet and getting a response back. Those type of ranges, we cannot do much about them. But anyway, the hackers cannot do much with them as well because, you know, there's no symmetric conversation possible through those. So it's pretty much useless for both ends, you know, for the good guys and the bad guys. Now, let's say we are in a company. I like to use JPMorgan as an example for everything. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Let's say they have like four exit points and they have 35,000 employees, right? If one of those exit points is exhibiting a bad behavior, we might block it at some point. So what we say is the following to our users. First, use the least minimum remediation. The goal is not to ban everything and everyone. It's not the point. If you can just say send a captcha, for example, it would probably deter most of the attacks on the web layer. It's no need to go further than that. If you have a dot, send multi-factor authentication. It's very clean, right? Or if you have further dots, you can I don't know, like send a kick your own script, because you're probably all coders if you're listening to to the Stack Overflow podcast. So you know you can kick your own script and you know check manually if this kind of threat is bigger than another. The other thing we're doing is we are clearing every IP every 72 hours if they have not done any more shenanigans so there's a noto ban, a probation period if you want and if you an ip has been caught and then doesn't exhibit any aggressive behavior for 72 hours it's automatically removed we have other mechanisms to to clean those ips easily and obviously you can remove your own ip from the consensus if you feel like
2: what i'm interested in hearing is like what led you to creating crowdsec and what led you to creating a product that works like this kind of what that whole process was like for you
0: yeah, it's an excellent question. And you know, it's, it's really, um, I think the best companies are born from the real world need, you know, uh, not something just drawn on a, on a table or on a wall because, you know, it might be great one day. When Elon Musk created SpaceX is because we needed to send a lot of stuff in space and we just could not afford to toss all of those uh, devices away after one use. That, that didn't make sense. Real world use case, even though we were sending rockets in space way before he started to SpaceX. So why we created this is the following. I founded another company before. It's, it was a hosting company and this company had customer, a very known one, actually, uh, Intersport is doing like sport, uh, wear and stuff, you know, everything related to sport. And those guys are kind of meaningful. And during the Olympics back in 2018, I think, they were under attack from someone that wanted to blackmail them at the worst possible period of time. Because, you know, during the mm-hmm. Olympics, people feel like mm-hmm. doing sports, so they sell a lot. And they were scanning their website, you know, constantly trying to find something you know, weak and, and break the website. They were hosted in a very high security uh, facility and environment. We had, like, very efficient, but, like, tons of pain to create one customer environment because you know compliance settings and stuff was really complicated but it worked and we blocked 3000 IPs like in a matter of 2 hours so the guy used literally 3000 different IP addresses to try to hack into the website and could not and we're like okay what do we do with these 3000 IPs you know there was something somehow It's fresh intel we know that those guys are using those IPs, and so if we broadcast it to the world, we can maybe uh, help others to defend themselves. But as a matter of fact, it's more complicated than this. First of all, an IP address here in Europe is considered a personal data, a private data. So you're not allowed to expose it, you know, without some context and framework. The second thing is we had no communication channel that people would listen to. Okay, we were not in the industry, but why would they integrate this into their firewall rather than something else? You know, it's a big decision to so we thought to ourselves, okay, how do we bring at the table the same value or more or less the same value as this high security environment? And how do we broadcast those information we have all together? How do we hold hands together against cyber criminals? Because honestly, the ratio is what? One to a thousand, like one cyber criminal for a thousand people willing to use the internet in a proper way. So the numbers matter here. If we are joining together, we can tackle this problem on a large scale. And the idea was to join together to make a crowd security
1: system. Looking at it from your perspective, having been in the world of security and now doing it in sort of a fresh way, do you see things headed in the right direction? From my perspective, as someone who talks a lot with software developers, but also who just reads the news, it sounds like things like ransomware are getting worse and the attack service has gotten broader. They're going after Machines in hospitals and gas pumps and just pieces of infrastructure get taken offline. And it doesn't feel like most organizations are able to keep up. The very wealthy organizations, the very tech-savvy organizations can keep up. They pay the best people and employ the best tools. I'm sure some of them are your clients. But for the average rural hospital, they don't have a clue, unfortunately, how to protect their machines. And sometimes those machines are keeping people alive, for example. So- I guess what's interesting about your approach is that it's sort of like you're saying, like, if there's a thousand good actors for every bad one, we can band together and, you know, stop them. But like when you look out more broadly, what do you see in terms of what's happening in the world of security, cybersecurity, at sort of a macro scale?
0: Sure. Well, first of all, there's a shortage that is crazy. I mean, you guys knew about it like way before us when I mean you and us. It's you, the developer community and the DevOps community and us, the SecOps community. You went through this shortage way before us, right? So it took time for the schools and the various facilities to train people and be uh, be able to cope with the demand, which is more or less now okay. You know, developers are super well paid, and that's fine by me. But at least we can do the project we have to do. In SecOps world, we are still, you know, day one. So we are missing roughly... 50% or 70% of the of the heads count we should have. Wow. So that's a real problem. So how do we make it a better place? Well, first of all, by equipping them better, you know, because they have what we call alert fatigue. They get a lot of, of signals, a lot, a lot of insights, and they don't have the bandwidth to treat all of them. So our goal is also to alleviate this alert fatigue they are a victim of. Because the heads are there. If we just make them more productive, more efficient, that's already a good stuff. The second thing is. Protection isn't a number, but to get the number, you have to to make it for free. Because if you want a hospital to adopt a solution, you don't want the NIST or whatever uh, local infrastructure you have for for healthcare to be uh, uh, spending a ton lot, because it will be uh, an adoption problem, right? It will be a friction for adoption. So that's why we think the, the value here is has to be for free. Every participant is making us richer by giving signals, right? So in return, we can make the two for free. So that that's already a one take. The other take you were discussing about is specifically ransomware. So I like the opportunity to insist on the fact that ransomware is absolutely not a new technique, right? It's never been a new technique. It's a new monetization, which is way different. They're still mm. breaking through like weak password or SQL injection or cross-site scripting or you name it, you know, there are tons of ways of breaking into a system. But the big difference is now they have an easy way out for making people pay what they think their data are worth for or not spreading the secrets or whatever, which is very, very bad. As I see it's like, say, if you take the colonial pipeline problem, right, the guy will be able to to remove the amount of uh, of ransom they paid from their taxes. What? It means like somehow the government (laughs) is kind of paying for that somehow, you know? How do you get to get rid of this problem by removing it from your taxes? It's just not possible. It's just incitation for the other uh, group, you know? And the thing also is like, there's a whole industry being built around it. So there are software developers, there are like uh, new products coming in the market, there are people negotiating your ransom for you, there are companies specializing into insurance and so on. It's not going to disappear because it's a whole industry being created out of it. So this is where I'm worried, you know? And one day... Some guy would be paid to plant a malware, if not already, into your system, even though you would be extremely uh, well protected, well, what do you do if an insider is being paid 100,000 or a million dollars to plug a rogue USB key or, or plant a malware into your, your system? You're screwed. There's not much you can do against that. So we need to be able to tackle down the only weak link in this industry and the cybercriminal industry, and this is the IP addresses. People think we have a lot, we have way more than we need, but it's not true. And on top of that, they need to harvest them or rent them, maintain them, and so on. Every time we burn some of them, we hurt their business. And there are not many ways of hurting those economics, you know, on the macro scale. An IP address is a weak
1: link. Hmm. And a lot of them get through by just through social engineering techniques, by sending phishing emails. And those are hard to defend against.
0: Yeah, but they are still using uh, IP addresses, you see. The IP where the uh, email emanate, the IP where this malware is going to point to, the uh, command and control centers, the scanning machines, all of them have one common point. Even though it's sometimes, uh, you're right, social engineering, all of them have one common point, IP address. And as a matter of fact, it's not an infinite number. So this
1: is where there's a, a point that we should pressure on. So like, yeah, from an IP based approach, which it sounds like CrowdSec is also, that's what you focus on, you're saying, sort of like either winnow down or really keep a tight eye on who the good and bad actors are. And like, if you had real-time, extremely accurate information, then you could be blocking, you know, bad actors more quickly and sort of narrowing the window that the ransomware industry can operate at.
0: People think, you know, one IP, one person is enough to hack into a big group. It's not the way it works. Like, it's definitely not the way it Mm -hmm. works in the modern world. DevOps are just the late kid in the room compared to hackers. They were doing industrialization a decade earlier. The industry has everything a decade earlier than we do. So mm-hmm. they have everything they need to deploy, to redeploy, to move, to change IPs on the fly, to change domain names on the fly and so on. forth. We have to be faster in the processing and subtler in, uh, in the sensitivity, right? So that's why the network size matters. The bigger the network, the most accurate and the fastest detection will be. So yes, they are are extremely well-organized and and automated, but we can beat them at this game because, once again, we are more people willing to use it in the proper way. Let me give you an example. If we take another problem we saw lately, it's like this micro but there have been tons of examples. These IoT routers, cameras, whatever, connected devices, they have barely any uh, spare budget on CPU cycles and RAM. To make any smart security, right? Because they are dedicated to do routing, to do a network camera, whatever they have to do, right? So, how do defend them? It's it's complicated in a sense, right? What we can do though is that before accepting a new connection on your IoT device, check this IP that is connecting to you against our database through an API call. Cost nothing, right? Any device in the world for the last fifty years know how to make an HTTP call. Cost nothing. And just before accepting an admin or whatever on whatever uh, context, check if this IP is legitimate. You will fold 90% of the attacks on the IoT surface just by doing this. Again, the IP
1: is unit of count here. So what are the, uh, the hard edge cases? in the sector? What are what are the things that are really difficult to fix? What keeps you up at night? Ryan's asking. Just, you tell us <laughs> your yeah, so yeah, nightmares. <laughs> yeah. Well, phones. Phones keep
0: me up at night mm-hmm. because yeah. I think we have a, a huge risk here. That is a vastly underestimated one. And I'm not a, a doomsday preacher or whatever, but let's imagine the following. Someone has a zero day, meaning an unknown exploit on uh, Android, say, right? It's doable. I, I really think it's doable. It's, it requires a lot of work, definitely, but it's doable. So one day you've got someone that can create a worm. He releases it at JFK. How many people per day in JFK? Mm-hmm. Quite a few, right? How many people connect to this Wi-Fi in the plane or in, the, in an airport and so on? We saw that the COVID can spread extremely fast okay, across the whole planet. If a worm is doing the same stuff, smartly enough to get you know hidden for a while and infect something like hundreds of millions of devices, how do we deal with those? Now, oh, me as CrowdSec mm. and the team as CrowdSec, we will have a problem with the number of IPs to deal with. Sure. But the global mankind has a problem with the internet because if the guy pressed the off button, the whole thing is crude instantly. Yeah. And he mm. will be able to ask for a ransom of billions of dollars. And we won't be able to patch those software, those machines on distance easily. And funny enough, there's a guy called Brunner who wrote a book in 70-something, 76 or something like this, okay, John Brunner, and this guy theorized this exactly, that mm-hmm. by then, there would be a global network that would be super critical to all mankind, and that a hacker would take control of it and ask for a ransom. It's funny, huh? More than, what, 50 <laughs> years ago?
2: I don't know if funny is the word. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm like, this kind of stuff makes me nervous, <laughs> That can make me nervous yeah. as well. <laughs> I've said this a few times before on the podcast, but I'm one of those people, I'm one of those developers that like doesn't know enough about cybersecurity. And so hearing things like this makes me feel like I need to watch my back more. Like, even I do have a friend before she got into software development, she did InfoSec, and she was saying how like there's so much risk in the things that just everyday people do. You go to the the cafe and you use their like public Wi-Fi and you have no idea how like insecure that really is and i just think about these things and i'm sure that if i actually had the chance to like sit down and have like a conversation with someone like you who really knows cybersecurity, you would probably be tearing your hair out at like some of the stuff
0: <laughs> i never yeah. ever connect to any wifi but my own never
2: see what i yeah. mean
0: yeah you have a package you use 4g for that you know it's it's way uh, more safer it's way safer for you by the way for the book if your guys are and girls are interested into reading it it's john brenner it's called the shark Wave rider It's really an excellent book. And you think the guy is a time traveler when you read it, really. (laughs) Maybe he is, warning us.
2: I'm interested in hearing, we just talked about something like a potential risk that could probably happen in the future that would be a big deal for your company. How do you see your company moving ahead with things like that? Or just in general, like how do you see your your company and the way it works evolving to be able to deal with things like that?
0: Well, the size is the key to, to whatever we're doing here. So... I'm hoping that in like, sorry, three years from now, we will have one million machine reporting what aggression they face in real time into the network. That would make it the the biggest value ever, I think, on, on the CTI front. So knowing everything about cyber threats in real time. And it's like Waze nowadays, you wouldn't think about driving into any major city you don't know about without Waze, right? It's exactly the same thing. It would be the de facto standard open and free for everyone to know if there's a risk ahead and if their infrastructure are at risk. So our future is really about like harnessing this community, getting people to get to know us, to know that we're not the bad guys, that we're not about to steal their data or resell it or whatever. It's not the point of the project. Any VC, honestly, any VC lately would be super happy to toast money at us because they know we're up to something different. And it's not so often you can hear that in the space. So, you know, we have no founding problem as such. We don't have to do a monthly recurring revenue every other day uh, as a focus. We can focus on growing the community as best as we can. And yes, there's a business model behind it. You know, business model is like if you don't partake into this network, but you want to benefit from it, say the case of... uh, uh, ip cameras for example you want to defend your ip cameras or routers against this but you cannot possibly uh, afford to join the network or you're a bank and you're not allowed for whatever regulation to share whatever fine you can still use what's in our gold mine but you would have to pay to access it on the other hand mm. if you're uh, part of this uh, healthcare people justice police forces and all we also open our books to you for free so if you have a question just ask us because we think we think it's a it's a responsibility we have. Let's put it like this.
1: All right. Well, it is that time of the show. Normally I shout out a lifeboat badge winner, but this is a security episode. So asked seven days ago on information security, why use random characters in passwords? We've got an answer for you. It seems like it's a simple thing, but it's actually quite quite interesting. So we'll put that in the show notes. I am Ben Popper. I am the Director of Content Marketing here at Stack Overflow. You can always find me on Twitter at Ben Popper. Email us, podcast at Stack Overflow. And if you like the show, leave us a rating and a review. It really helps. I'm Ryan Donovan. I edit the blog here at Stack Overflow. You can find me on Twitter at rthordonovan. If you have a great idea for a blog post, please email me at pitches at stackoverflow.com.
2: I'm Cassidy Williams. You can find me at Cassidoo, C-A-S-S-I-D-O-O on most things. And I'm Ciora Ford. I'm a developer advocate at Apollo GraphQL. And you can find me on Twitter. My username there is at Ciorio. That's C-E-E-O-R-E-O underscore.
0: And I'm Philip from CrowdSec. And don't forget, it's a C at the end and not a next. <laughs>
2: <laughs>